um, continue our, our study in the book of Ephesians. Uh, if you want to turn there, uh, our verses are not printed in the bulletin this week because we ran out of space. So we'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 5. I am really convinced that this is the way to do it, folks. You, you go to the Word of God, you start with verse 1, and then you go to verse 2, and you proceed to verse 3, and you keep on going on. And uh, it's not the flashiest way to do things. There's not a, little, there's not a lot of fluff and puff and stuff. Uh, you know, the, the nice way to do that would be to pick the five most interesting things in the book of Ephesians and hit on them in five weeks. But this is, this is just a systematic way of teaching the Word of God. And, and so we do not go very fast. Uh, we've been in this book for a year now. And as of today, Woodland Hills is three years old. Isn't that great? Three years old. Happy birthday to us. And the reason we have all this stuff out here is because the backstage is full of this, uh, whatever they're doing back there. So, uh, yeah, stuff. So we're, we're going to be a little crammed here, but I don't mind. I got these drums available. And um, so whenever I want, uh, whenever I go like this, it means I think you're falling asleep on me. And that means you're supposed to go amen. All right, good, good. Got amen in church here. Anyways, like I was saying, um, this is uh, the process of just, if, if, the, the, the basic presupposition here is if God took the time to inspire the words, we have to take the time to understand them. And so we're just going through it and picking it apart and uh, let it, letting it just confront us. I want to encourage all of you who have bought those tapes, uh, Faith Comes By Hearing Tapes, to keep up with that program of listening 19, 20 minutes a day or so to get through it in, in about 60 days. It really does build faith. And those of you who don't have that, uh, I just encourage you to be in, involved in reading the Word of God. Just reading this book brings faith. It brings power. It brings transformation. God set it up that way. So I encourage you to be involved in it. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says this, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be about making your life a fragrant offering, a fragrant sacrifice. Be about imitating God. In contrast to that, Paul says this, But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality nor any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people, For nor should there be obscenity, Foolish talk or co coarse joking. I got a whole front row section here is waiting to hear what I'm going to say about that because they know that that verse is, that, that's my life verse. <laughs> okay. Which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no, no, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So live as children of light. Let's pray. Father, let your spirit land here and dwell here, hover here. And God, intertwine your spirit with each word. That it would have transforming power. I pray, God, that this would be a freeing message. I pray, Lord God, that it would uh, teach us something about how to lovingly relate to one another and guard us from error. And I pray, Lord God, that it would, when necessary, convict us. 
But you've got to do that. I relieve myself of the responsibility of doing that because my words can't do that. You, Lord, can use anything to your own glory. So use these words, we pray in your name. Amen. Paul said, be imitators of God. Like Christ emptied himself, so you should empty yourself. Pour your life out for others. And then he, there's a way of contrasting with that. He says, don't live like this. He points out some things that were common in his culture and common in our culture, which are flags of, flags of what happens when you don't live this life of love. The first flag we talked about last week was sexual immorality. Using sexuality, which is God's gift to express love, using it not to give at all, but to get. And the word there is porneia, and he also used another word. Porneia means immorality. Another word is, is, is defilement. And Paul says there, stay away from that. It may feel loving, it may look loving, it may sound loving, and everybody in your culture may think that it's fine and dandy, but stay away from it. It is not loving. Rather, it, is, it doesn't exemplify sacrificial love. Sexuality outside of marriage doesn't show that. What it shows is that there's something higher than your desire to help the other person, namely your own sexual gratification. Sexuality is an expression of love when it comes after the sacrifice of marriage. Paul, as the whole Bible assumes, as all of us know, marriage is sacrifice. And in, in that light, sexuality is the icing on the cake. It's great. Outside of that, however, it doesn't do what God intended it to do. And now Paul will give us four more words that are flags showing us that we are perhaps living in ways that are not in line with his model of being an imitator of God. And the four words are obscenity, silly talk, coarse joking, and greed. And I want to run through each of these words. The first is obscenity. The word obscenity, iskrotes, means to shame or to humiliate with language, usually with a sexual connotation. Coming on the heels of what Paul just said about porneia, what Paul's getting at is this. Don't simply abstain from immorality with your behavior, but abstain from it with your words. Iskrotes, obscenity, is really a linguistic form of pornography. It is doing with words what Paul just said, don't do with your body. It is making an object out of a person with your words. It is humiliating them, perhaps undressing them, perhaps violating them, perhaps raping them with your words. Don't take any consolation in the fact that you don't do that with your behavior because when you do it with your words, that also is not loving. You are not building them up. You are tearing them down, and Paul says that that is out of place among believers who are called to live lives that imitate God. The picture I get in my mind is this crew that I used to work with uh, my last year before I came out, out here. When I was going through graduate school, I was a masonry laborer, and I worked with this crowd of people. Uh, uh, Lord, help the woman who walked past us when uh, we were building houses with bricks. Uh, these men would barrage these victims with language and this was not in any sense of the word uh, complimentary or welcomed or whatever. It was vulgar, it was indecent, and it was uninvited, and it was humiliating, and it was shameful. That's obscenity. And so Paul says, don't do that. Do not. Words are to be used to build love. Don't use words as weapons. And when you use them in sexually inappropriate ways, they are weapons and they hurt. Here is this woman who is created in the image of God, who is created beautiful in the image of God, who has got infinite potentiality, a person for whom Jesus Christ died, and these people are making her into an object, a piece of meat with their language. That is obscenity. Paul says, have nothing to do with it. Now, that one was easy. 
The next two words are a little harder. Paul says, avoid foolish talk and coarse joking. The the Revised Standard Version has, avoid silly talk and levity. Help us, Lord. (laughs) Okay, let's talk about this. What does that mean? Silly talk and levity. Uh, If this this verse means that we are to avoid any sort of silliness uh, and goofing around and and, and any sort of levity, like we're always supposed to be serious, somber, always, you know, hmm, hmm, uh, then we're in trouble. At least I'm in big trouble, and I expect most of you are in trouble too. I know Dave is really in trouble because he lives for this. Because the truth of the matter is, is that I like to be silly. I like to be goofy. Don't you? Once in a while. Do you see anything wrong with that? What's going on here? I liked the show. I mean, honestly, I have not matured a great deal since junior high school, and I'm not even embarrassed by that fact. <laughs> I liked the show Dumber and Dumber. I'm willing to admit it. I, I enjoyed that. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, Dumb and Dumber. Okay, thank you. for. Dave saw it 14 times, and he doesn't even get it. He, the plot's too thick for him, but no, we'll talk about that later on. All right, Dave, you, you said up here purposely, he said he was going to give me cat calls throughout the whole sermon. I think it's hilarious. I think human beings, I think we're funny, and we need to sometimes step out of ourselves and laugh at ourselves. There's so many things about us that are funny. The way we're awkward around one another, the way we have certainly certain bodily functions that we're embarrassed by. It's funny to laugh at that. So the show where the guy's on a first date, and then, you know, he gets diarrhea, and, and, and it's all, it's hilarious. I'm just in tears looking at this. And you think, oh, pastor, but that is so immature. It's so juvenile. It's so delinquent. Yes! And that's what's great about it. It's funny. Don't you ever long to just go back to seventh grade and laugh like a seventh grader and be silly and goofy and a little off the wall and a little daring and and sometimes just be a little left of center on stuff? Sometimes we need that. Life is too serious. It's too sad to take it all so serious and sadly. Sometimes you need a break. At least that's the way my mind operates. And if this verse is saying, don't ever be silly, I'm in big trouble because I like to be silly and I am silly and, and I don't even see what's wrong with that. I don't always see what's, uh, sometimes it seems to me that being silly and being offensive can be building. What's even worse about this is that if, if this verse is saying don't ever be silly and don't ever be flippant or have levity, is it means that all the Urkel Christians of the world are right. And that scares the kajibers out of me. And you're wondering, what is an Urkel Christian? You say, I hate when he uses Greek. Well, I'm not using Greek. Urkel, you know the guy Urkel on uh, Family Matters or Living Color, is it Family Matters? Urkel. Well, it seems to me that a lot of believers, some believers anyways, are like, like Urkel. They're Urkel Christians, and, and they, they hold their Bible up really high, and, and they, they, they walk around like this, and they just know all the rules and all the rights and wrongs. And if you ever go any, you know, say anything that doesn't sound quite right to them, or if you take, have any kind of humor that just doesn't seem to hit them right, well, they'll just point it out to you right like that. And my Bible says, you know, my Bible says, and, and it's like, oh, get a life, get a little bit of humor. What happened when your mother was potty training you, you know, lighten up a little bit. I had, a, and here's the thing, is that something about me attracts them. I, I, I it's, uh, I, I am like a light bulb, and they are like bugs, and it's like, boom, right there. And it's not that they like me, it's that they like to point things out to me, and I always offend them, and I don't even mind offending them. In fact, I sometimes go out of my way to offend them. They, they, how could you say, 
And every year at Bethel, I get into some kind of trouble. Uh, you know, I had one student get very mad at me one time because I made a joke about something. We had to take a break, and I made a joke about a little kid wanting a pee-pee break. And they were so offended that I used that word. You know, obscenity, vulgarity. And, and every year I do something that offends. I had a, there was a student advisor of mine, this is the truth, who we showed Princess Bride one time at Bethel in the uh, you know, auditorium, which is not quite an X-rated movie, I don't think, but The Princess Bride, some of you have seen that. That's the movie that has love. we talked about that last week, <laughs> marriage and all that. And it's kind of a Christian classic. And this person quit Bethel, I'm serious, because apparently, I don't even remember this, but the boy in the word uses the S word, the S-H word. It ends with a T, you know the word. And apparently he uses the word. And this person was so offended that a Christian college, a Christian college could ever show such, a, such vulgarity and endorse it. We weren't endorsing it, but that was part of the movie. Well, these people, if this verse is saying, always be serious, never laugh, don't joke around, always be sober or whatever, these, these, these Urkel types are always the right and heaven will be full of them. And that scares me. <laughs> They'll constantly be going to the Lord and telling on me. You know what he did now? You know, tattletales. The other thing I don't get, though, is this. If, if this verse is saying, don't laugh, don't be silly, don't have levity, don't be flippant, don't goof around. If that's what these verses are saying, then here's a problem I have. There's nothing else that I see in the Bible that seems to go along with that. In fact... A lot of times in the Bible, laughing is really seen as being a good thing. The Bible says a couple dozen times that the Lord laughs. In fact, the Bible portrays God as, as, as laughing hilariously at his foes, shouting for joy, dancing in heaven, clapping his hands. God is a happy God. He's not depressed about the, the responsibility he has. He kind of set it up that way. He's a happy God. And the Bible elsewhere portrays laughter as an appropriate needing, needful thing. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, there's a time to mourn, but there is a time to laugh. Says Proverbs 31 says, A virtuous woman is one who laughs at the future. <laughs> uh, in the face of adversity, she laughs. That's a virtuous woman. She has a good. <laughs> Foreclosure. <laughs> Repossess the car. <laughs> You're going to divorce who? <laughs> no. It's. Being able to laugh in, in tough situations is a sign of, of virtuousness, says the Bible. Jesus, Jesus I, I think, had an ability to, and it doesn't come out very much in our translations, but I'm convinced he had a sense of humor. And it comes out in some ways. I think, I bet the first time he, he said this, now we're so used to it, it's not funny, but when he said, don't go looking for uh, little specks of dust in other people's eyes when you've got two by fours coming out of your own eyes. I bet, I bet, the, I bet they were rolling on the ground uh, when, when the first time he said that. Or here's another one. Uh, you strain at a gnat, but you swallow a camel. You had to be there, I guess. But, but <laughs> no, but in the Aramaic, in the Aramaic, it's a pun on words. You know, these Pharisees, they'd use this little, uh, this little screen when they drink so they wouldn't get a gnat in their mouth because that would defile their mouths, you know, their precious mouths. And, and so he's saying you strain at a gnat, and the, in the Aramaic word for gnat is galma, but you swallow an entire camel, which is the word glamma. And so he's, you know, saying you strain at galmas, but... Swallow glamas? It was funny. Yeah. He had a sense of humor. The woman at the well, you know, he knew how to make a point. He could do it in a little sarcastic way. She, he says, where's your husband? She says, I don't have a husband. He says, well, you got a point there. Because, uh, you know, you've been married five times, and the guy you're living with now isn't your husband. It's kind of like, you know, church lady hmm, kind of thing. Uh, making a point there. But in the whole, the Bible is, it does not condemn laughter. In fact, it kind of lifts that up and talks about how the Lord gives joy and whatnot. The other thing you've got to ask yourself is this. 
Where did we get the ability to laugh if not from God? Think about that. We always have these Charlton Heston pictures of God, you know. Uh, he, he was Moses, not God. But, you know, you, you've seen the pictures of God. Uh, Michelangelo is the austere old guy who's always ticked off. And then that kind of thing. But, and there's a side of the awesomeness and fearfulness of God, but there's also a side of God, as the Bible portrays it, that is just about laughing. We're made in the image of God, and one way to find out what the image of God is is to see how are we different from the animals. Well, you know what? Animals can't laugh. Animals can't even smile. I know dolphins always look like they're smiling, but their face is just molded that way. <laughs> they can't laugh. They can't tell jokes. The other day, uh, uh, Candace, where are you? I saw Candace, where are you? Raise your hand. I'm gonna, where's Candace? There you are, Candace. That's my TA. She's a great TA, my teaching assistant. And the other day, she came into my office. She's brand new. We're just getting acquainted. You know, she's got to spend some time in my office, grade papers and all that kind of stuff. And she came in with this nice ice cream cone. Nice, big ice cream. I keep wondering when this, work is, when this uh, trick is going to stop working. She had this nice, juicy ice cream cone. And I go, Candace, and she's a health fanatic. So I said, how can you eat that stuff? She goes, what, what? I go, you bought that down on Market Square? She goes, sure. Do you know, do you have any idea how many preservatives they put into that thing? She goes, what preservatives? I go, Candace, come on. If you just smell it, if you just smell the ice cream, you can smell the preservatives. <laughs> she starts smelling it and whap. <laughs> all right. And Candace has got this big ice cream all over her face, you know. And I'm going, yeah. But... And she ends up crying with tears of laughter. I mean, it was really funny. Now, she could have easily gotten mad and put the ice cream on me, and then I would have learned what my boundaries were. But <laughs> she rolled with it. And here's the thing. You can't, you can't train a dog or a cat or any kind of animal to do that kind of stuff. That's part of being human. That's, that's one of the light sides of human. We have the ability. We have the ability to step outside of ourselves and laugh at ourselves, and it's, it's, a, it's a real gift. And however we take these verses, we can't use them to undermine that kind of thing. Laughter can be a gift from God. It builds community. It can build community. I think, I think the way that uh, sometimes we use humor, even off-colored humor, as a way of getting close to one another, uh, it, it's, uh, it, you know, you know that you have a friend when you can insult them, and they insult you. Uh, it, it's part of friendship. Dave, what would we do without insults? We'd have nothing to talk about. <laughs> it's the only thing Dave understands. It's, you know, I, but it's a way of... When we can joke about our body size and joke about our marriages and joke about our trouble raising kids and joke about our sexuality even when you're among close friends, we're getting in on the inside of each other's lives and, and we're helping actually carry each other's loads and saying, you know what, there's a light side to everything. And humor can be a community building thing. It also can be a healthy thing individually. Some people just need to laugh. They really do. There are some people, I get... So many people walk around so serious. Usually they got a big agenda, a big ideology, and they're always mad. And they're, it's like, lighten up a little bit. Get looser pants. Do something. But you need to laugh. <laughs> you need to laugh a little bit. Orbit the same planet as the rest of us and join the human race and laugh a little bit. Studies show that people who laugh tend to be healthier. In fact, there are some people who recommend uh, laughing two minutes a day, even if there's nothing to laugh at. And you'll feel really dumb doing that, but they say that it, it, gets, it releases tension and stuff like that. Um, it's good. When you can laugh, here's the thing. The Bible, when it describes God as laughing, usually says he's laughing at his enemies. He's laughing at evil because Satan, the evil one, thinks he can overthrow God. God laughs at him. And God gives us the permission in Colossians chapter 2 to also laugh at the enemy. Sometimes I think when God gives us laughter as a gift, 
And whatever is genuine with this, this, this movement of, of, of this laughing revival that's out there, a lot of it, I think, is just hokey. But I think there's some genuine elements to it, or at least there might be. It's happened to me one time about 20 years ago where you get this holy laughter. What that is about, I believe, is God giving us the ability to laugh the way he laughs. Because, see, here's the thing, believer. Believer, we know that however bad it gets right now, however down things are right now, however gloomy right it is right now, I don't care if you're dying right now. You know what? When all is said and done and this short blink of an eye show is over with, we come out on top. We come out victors. We are victorious. And that means that in a way we can, in a way, laughing at our troubles. Do you ever get to the point where your finances are so far gone that it's laughable? Do you ever do that where you just, ha, ha, what are we going to do? You know, it gets funny. Sometimes in a marriage when things are, you know, you get so much on each other's nerves, if you can just stop back and look at how juvenile you're being, the silly things that you're talking about, the way you're nitpicking, you never thought you'd come to this. And if you can just laugh at yourself, you're half the way out of the bag doing that. And in some ways, that is sort of sharing in God's laughter at the possibility of defeat. Because when all is said and done, we come out on top, we come out victorious, and we have the ability, we have the right, in fact, as believers, to share in God's victorious laughter at the enemy who will not defeat us. Let's get an amen there, all right? All right. All right. That was cheap. All right. We're in God's image. Okay, so having said all that, you know the value of laughter. What do we do with these verses? Ah, throw them out. No. What do you do with this? Silly talk and coarse joking. Let me give a little principle here that's a very important one. When you find things in the Bible, especially the New Testament, that just sort of sit there, they don't seem to make any sense, maybe they are even counterintuitive, um, they just, it looks like a sheer rule. More often than not, there's something you need to know about the word or about the background to make sense of the whole thing. God usually just doesn't say, you know, throw out rules for the sake of rules. I want you to hang your clothes this way as opposed to that way or something. God doesn't do that kind of thing. Usually there's a rationale behind it. And you need to know that. The church that uh, we came from, uh, you know, they used to think that guys couldn't have long hair. There's a verse in the Bible that says men should not have long hair. So they said, okay, men shouldn't have long hair. Terry, Terry's got hair down to about here, you know. Uh, what would Terry look like if he got his hair cut above his ears and, and it couldn't touch your shoulder? That's what this church said. Bible says that the Urkels, it's full of Urkels. And you know, I shouldn't have long hair. It says right here in verse this. And you've got to ask the question, why? What, some guys look good in long hair. What is it about long hair? I mean, isn't God the one who makes it grow? If God wants short hair, why didn't he just quit it growing? Just, it's long enough, I'm going to stop growing here. What is it about long hair? Now, if you understand the culture, you understand why Paul would, in, in Corinth, which is where that verse comes from, why Paul would say, don't have long hair. Because long hair in a man was a sign of prostitution. So Paul says, no, I don't want that. Don't, don't go around looking like a prostitute or a gigolo. And that applies today as well as back then. But it doesn't have anything to do with long hair anymore. It has to do with other things, and I don't even know what it has to do with, but, but that's the point. Or how about this one? The verse that says, a woman shouldn't have braided hair. Don't have braided hair. I can picture an Urkel place saying, well, there, okay, no braids. You know, and they go around and check your woman's hair. Do you have any secret braids in there? Why? Was God got it against braids? What's the deal here? God just, he doesn't prefer that? What's, what's the deal? Some braided hair looks really, looks really nice. Well, if you understand the culture, you understand that uh, braided hair in the first century, that was a sign of gaudiness. In some circles, it was a sign of prostitution. So Paul would say, you know what, Christian believers, for your witness, do not go around looking like a prostitute and looking gaudy. You know, look, look humble, look decent. And that applies to us today, though, to, to, today, but it doesn't have anything to do with braided hair anymore. 
Or, or here's another one I'll just throw out for good measure, just to kind of get feisty. But when Paul says that a woman shouldn't teach or have authority over a man in the book of Timothy at the church at Ephesus, you've got to ask the question, what is it about women that makes them inherently incapable of teaching? And what is it about men that makes them inherently qualified? Is that a gender thing? Does that occur uh, to you as, as, as a commonsensical point? To modern people, most modern people, anyways, sane modern people, it's, it's, there's something odd about that. It's, it doesn't fit. But if you understand the cultural situation in Ephesus, the role of women in Ephesus, how they were being used in temple prostitution at the temple of Diana, you'd understand why Paul in that cultural situation would say, hey, at this time and place, do not have women teach or have authority over men. You've got to sometimes do a little digging. You've got to get into the word. You've got to get into the culture. So having said all that, what is Paul getting at with his phrase, silly talk, silly talk and coarse jesting? The word silly talk. The word is moranlogia. Moranlogia. Two words involved in that. Logia is the word for speech. Logos, speech. Moron is the word for moron. We get the word moron from that word. <laughs> moron means moron. What Paul is saying here is don't talk like a moron. Now, what's a moron? What's an idiot? This is a hard one, folks. So hang with me. A moron is someone who doesn't have a clue as to what's going on. Someone who's out of touch. They talk to trees, but trees don't talk. That's why they're called morons. A person who just is out of touch with reality. Now, the reality that Paul's getting at here is the reality of imitating God. That's what the whole verse is about. Be imitators of God. Live like God. Because as we saw last week, God is about God is the God of love. He creates out of love. The whole purpose for the thing is love. The agenda is love. Love is the final beginning and end of all things. And so Paul is saying here, do not use language in ways that are not in touch with the way things really are. A good example of this, I hesitate to use it because I don't mean to comment on this issue at all, but a good example of this is Mark Furman. The way he speaks about African Americans is he, he doesn't have a clue as to what is going on. It's moronic language. And scary that he is in the position or was in the position of authority that he was in. The reality of the situation is that God made all people in the image of God. God made whites in the image of God. God made blacks in the image of God. God made Hispanics and Latinos and Cubans and every other Oriental, all, all different kinds of people in the image of God. And it shows forth his beauty. It shows forth his ingenuity. It shows forth his creativity that there's so many different kinds of them. That's the reality of the situation. And the reality of the situation is that the purpose of language is to bind us together and to build us up and to promote love. And when you get a person who doesn't understand that, who doesn't have a clue as to what is real, but rather you get a person who's got a real pathetic ego and has got to build himself up by tearing down some other class of people that look different from him, you've got a person who's using moronic language. And it does not build up love. It rather destroys. It's full of hate. It's destructive. It goes against why God created the world. And that's moronic language. The reality of the situation is that Jesus Christ died in order to make out of the the different races of people, one race, and he tore down the walls of hostility, Ephesians chapter 2 says. That's what's real. And he poured out his spirit as a way of reversing the Tower of Babel where the, where the peoples became differentiated. That's what's real. But Mark Furman language and anything like it goes directly against it. It's out of touch with reality. These people don't have a clue as to what is real, but they're, 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 they're totally subsumed in their own fantasies of their own self, self-promoting and hatred of others. 
And that's moronic language, folks. That is moron language. That's language that doesn't connect with reality. And Paul says, have nothing to do with it. Any use of language. Silly talk just trivializes it. That's not a good translation of it. This is a vindictive, malicious kind of thing that ought not to be there. It's not just silly goofing around. This is viciousness. And any kind of language that goes against love, any kind of language that tears down, that destroys, that humiliates, it is modologia. It is... Not silly talk, but it's malicious moron talk. Then he uses this other word, coarse joking. Coarse joking. The word there in Greek literally means to play on words. It's really interesting, to play on words. Paul is here, he, he's basically following his talk about don't be involved in immoral behavior, was talking about immoral language. And all of this has sexual connotations to it or hateful connotations to it. This play upon words has the connotation of using language in a double way that's malicious. And, and, and the clearest example of it would be this. When a person's trying to talk to someone else and they keep on, usually it has sexual connotations to it, they keep on reading into what they're saying, something that the person never intends, as a way of humiliating them. Picture a woman coming to apply for a job and the male boss says, you want a job? She goes, yeah. And he says, well, I got a job for you. And it's just kind of in the buddy's laugh. And as the interview goes on, he keeps on turning everything she says into something with a double entendre. Uh, it has a double meaning to it, and she gets more and more humiliated and frustrated and aggravated. That is, that is the kind of double talk that Paul's talking about here. I remember seeing one time on Johnny Carson, this lady, wife of somebody, I forget who it was, Zsa Kabor was on there too. And uh, this lady was trying to talk to Johnny Carson, and everything she said, he would turn into a sexual kind of joke. And she did not appreciate it. She, she was getting close to tears. She was getting aggravated. And the more aggravated she got, the worse the jokes got. And in the end, all the people in the audience, Johnny Carson, Josh Gabor, and all the people watching TV were laughing at this woman being belittled. That's what Paul's getting at. Do not use language in a way that tears down, in a way that destroys, in a way that humiliates. He's not just talking about innocent jesting that builds community. He's talking about language that destroys community, that turns people into objects that tears them down. The final thing that Paul says here, and I close with this, is greed. If porneia is about getting when you ought to be giving in sexuality, greed is about getting when you ought to be giving pertaining to everything else in the world. Greed is about going through life with hungry eyes. That is to say, greed is about looking at the world as your feeding ground, and you're always trying to get more, and you never quite have enough because what you're feeding in the core of your gut is a black hole. A black hole of worth, a black hole of esteem. You're trying to get your identity, get your worth, get your value from what you get. And it is, folks, rampant in our culture. The house being a reflection of who you are, the car, the clothes, whatever, being an indication of your worth, your value, your esteem, or what have you, that can be greed as rampant. It comes quickly in our culture. Last year, my wife and I were going out to the Parade of Homes, and I love the Parade of Homes. I'm not against the Parade of Homes. Those of you who are housemakers here, God bless you. I hope you sell big houses. Okay, having said that, we went on the Parade of Homes, and we were in the process of building a house, and we had this little budget that we were going to work with. Here's the trouble, though, and a lot, I, a lot of you know what I'm talking about if you've ever been shopping for a house. You go on the Parade of Homes, and you start walking in these houses, and you go, you start at, you know, the, the cheaper houses, and you keep on getting the better and better and better houses, 
And at, at one point, maybe you had a $125,000 dream house that you were going to build. But every house you go to, you think, oh, honey, we got to have this. Honey, we got to have this. Oh, look at this nice vinyl finish. Oh, look at this. But look at this nice tile floor. And you keep on including things that you want to get. Oh, we got to have this. We got to have this. But we got to have this. Well, our house surely can't go without this. And by the time you're done, you got a $200,000, $300,000 house. And you can't afford that. You can afford a $125,000 house. But it's not your dream house anymore. It's a shack. <laughs> and you would have been happy with it. And now, having gone to all these other beautiful houses, you feel so inadequate. And we have a tendency as Americans to look around, and we always, instead of seeing the 98% of people who are below us, we see the 2% that are above us, and we say, oh, I wish, I wish, I wish, I could have, I gotta have, I want this. And we try, it's an indication of our worth, so we feel like we're just kind of down lower or something, unless we can keep up with the Joneses. So we gotta have a bigger car, gotta have more toys, gotta have a bigger house, gotta have better clothes, gotta have shinier rings or what have you, and it's always more, 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 more. And I'm not against having nice things. If God blesses you with those things, have them. But when those things become an end in and of themselves, and when they narrow our vision of the world so that we do not see the gospel perspective of the world, which is a perspective where the highest end is love, that at that point it becomes greed. Think about this. It, it, I'm not doing this to guilt us out. I'm doing it just to give a true perspective on things. U.S. Constitutes about 7% of the population of the world, and we consume 45% of the world's resources. We are the second richest nation in the world, second only to this little tiny nation over there by Switzerland. I forget what it is. But in terms of big nations, we are the richest, but we give the least of any developed nation to, to developing third world countries. That is not imitating God. That is not love. That is what the Bible calls greed. And when we live in a world where there's 15,000 kids that starve to death a day, and when many Americans can only think about how they need to get their 73rd pair of shoes, something's weird here, something's askew. We're not seeing things as they really are. If, if, if Furman has moronic language, this is moronic perceptions. We're not seeing things as they really are. That's what the Bible calls greed. When one in five kids in the world, in, in, in third world countries, dies of disease that could have been cured if they only, only had available to them enough medicine, when all's we, and when, when, when a third of the world is malnourished and another third is just on the border and all we can think about is how we got to upgrade our kitchen or whatever, then maybe it can be if we're not seeing that and all we see is our little needs, what we think is our needs, then we're involved in greed. And it permeates our culture and it permeates the church and we just got to call it for what it is. It's, it's, it's greed. One of the things that I just loved about this Mexico trip that our kids went on we had 15 kids go to Mexico. They got to see what the world was like outside of America, outside of St. Paul. Actually, you don't have to go out of St. Paul to see how the world is different. But they went down to Mexico, and one of the churches they went to was in a very impoverished town where they had sewage running alongside of the road, and the people lived in eight-by-eight eight shacks. Families of, of six, seven, eight people lived in one-room shacks. And they had, for a church, they had four little brick very rough brick walls, and they had a ceiling that was made of board. And to have church service, they'd take the boards that were the ceiling of the church and put them on, on bricks on the floor, and they'd make that pews out of that. Impoverished town. About like about a third of the world, two billion people live like this. And our kids got a chance to see this, and what was really ministering is that after this church service, our kids went down there, they did clowning acts and ministering things to try to get kids to come. And, and minister to them and, and just try to show a little bit of happiness and share a little bit of the gospel there. Afterwards, the people in this poor town invited them over for supper. And they were so happy to say thank you to these Americans who came and shared what they had. And what these poor people had to offer them was simply some beans and a little bit of taco bread. 
But they were going to share what they had. And they put the beans on the taco bread. And with joy, they gave them what they had. And they were so proud of the supper they threw for these kids. That is love. That is love. That is imitating God, taking what you have, even if you don't have very much, and sharing it with others. That is love. I'm so happy our kids got a chance to see that. Love is saying this, if I got a bean and you don't have a bean, here's half my bean. That is love. And it characterized the early church. You read about it in, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 5. These people had all things in common. If I got three shirts and you don't have any, here, have one of my shirts. Uh, you know, if I, if I got one too many, one more than I need, and you have one less than you need, then by golly, have this. And see, what they understood and what we need to understand really clearly, if we're going to be imitators of God in this culture, the main thing that that's going to come against is money. Love is about taking what you've got and sharing it with another. You see, the only value, this is the loving perception, the only value that stuff has, and it goes directly against the American culture, is this. The minute you stop breathing, the nice car and the great home and all the goodies and toys that you have don't mean a thing. You don't take it with you, not one bit of it. The only value stuff has is when it can be invested in something that is eternal. And what is eternal is people. What is eternal is love. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 13. The one thing that lasts forever is love. And the conclusion we've got to draw if we're going to be imitators of God is this. The value that things have, the house has, the car has, the clothes has, the bank account has, the value, the primary value it has is how it can promote love. How you can use it for the sake of love. How you can use it to invest in the lives of others. How you can open it up for other people. How you can demonstrate Christ-likeness by the things that God has blessed you with. Let God bless you. Pray that God bless you. It's okay to be blessed. But know what the purpose of it all ultimately is. And it's not just to feel good about yourself, but to love, to give, to spread it, to invest it in what's eternal. Father, Father, there's a stronghold of greed in this culture, and we confess that we are in bondage to it, Lord, maybe even in ways that we don't even see. I pray, God, for myself, and I pray, God, for, for, for this congregation, that you, would be about, that you would be about freeing us really freeing us to enter into the joy of self-sacrificial love, Lord, that we would become fragrant offerings in what we say, fragrant offerings of sacrifice in what we do, fragrant offerings of self-sacrifice in how we spend, and that we would show forth Christ-likeness in all these areas, Lord God. Help us to have an eye for those around us that are in need. Help us, Lord God, to with all of our energy resist everything in our words and everything in our deeds and everything in our culture that is the antithesis of love to live like you. We need your spirit to do it, Lord. We need your spirit to do it. In Jesus' name we pray.